Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I'm going to take you around the Germany Pavilion at Epcot and uh, show you around, tell you some of the things that you can see and do, and I hope you enjoy it. And from my homeland, begrüßen wir unsere Familienmitglieder aus Deutschland recht herzlich. I'm going to break this up and I'll give you an overview, talk about the buildings, designs, and architecture, then move on to talk about the grounds, outdoor gardens, and displays. I'll then head inside and talk about all the inside displays and shopping, and afterward I'll tell you about the entertainment that you'll find, characters and kid stuff, and I'll end with dining options and drinking around the world. Finally, I'll give you some details on what either was planned for the pavilion or is planned for the future. Now, this is the third in a series of podcasts I've created to look at the World Showcase portion of Epcot. If you want to hear more, the overview of what World Showcase is can be found in podcast number 208, and then in 209, I talk about Japan in detail. Now, like Japan, Germany is one of the nine opening day pavilions that made up the World Showcase half of Epcot. And also like Japan, Germany holds the distinction of having been an enemy in World War II. Remember that the pavilions were being designed in the mid-1970s. That's a span of less than 30 years between the end of the war and planning for Epcot. In Japan's case, the designers focused on a period of time well before the war and the designs from the countryside, and in many ways it made planning much simpler. In Germany's case, it wasn't quite so simple. Imagineers had to balance representing Germany the country and its rich history while not focusing on the parts of recent history that sort of involved the war. That compromise means that the pavilion is not representative of central Germany, where you would find big cities. In short, they were trying to avoid anything that would be familiar as a part of World War II. There was also an additional problem that you had a divided, that is, East and West Germany. And for those of you who don't remember, that was all related to a period of time during the Cold War, where the Soviet Union controlled the eastern part of Germany, and Berlin was a completely divided city, with a wall down the middle of it, and several countries, including the U.S., controlled parts of Berlin. Undoubtedly, it was tricky for the Imagineers to find a representation of that. So they focused on an earlier time, from the 12th to 17th centuries, and basically what you see is a mashup of Bavaria, Austria, and some small towns in the south. The primary concept was to incorporate elements of the Rhine River region that's in the south of Germany that runs through Bavaria and Austria. The Imagineers said of the design that it promoted feelings of Gemütlichkeit, or friendliness. To bring it all together, the main design of the buildings are Baroque. The term Baroque relates to the style of European architecture, music, and art of the 17th and 18th centuries that followed mannerism that is characterized by ornate detail. In architecture, this period is exemplified by the Palace of Versailles and by the work of Bernini in Italy. And like I always say, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. But you may still be asking yourself, why Germany? There were still hard feelings toward Germany in the 70s, 
and a divided Germany proved to be a bit of a flashpoint for the Cold War. But the answer can be found in the financials. There were several German companies that wanted to get their name out there and left it a chance to sponsor a pavilion all about Germany. That provided much of the capital Disney needed to go forward and, of course, made the Germany pavilion a no-brainer. Now, with that out of the way, let's take a look around. If you stand out by the lagoon and look into the pavilion, you'll notice that there's a feeling of a small village of sorts. There are buildings surrounding a main plaza, or the plots. That square itself is evocative of a more or less typical town in the Rhine region. It's kind of a town square, if you will. Now, there is a hidden significance here. Several of the tales told by the Gebrüder Grimm, or as we know them, the Brothers Grimm, revolved around small German towns, and some of the drawings in their stories and their descriptions of the villages are similar in nature to what you see here. Now, the Grimm's were German, of course, and one of the stories they wrote was Schneewittchen, or Snow White, as it's known in English. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was the first full-length animated film that Walt Disney made, and it won him an Oscar in 1937. So in a way, there's an homage to this connection in history. The selection of the plaza is really intentional. Now you'll notice that there's a fountain in the middle of the plots, and it's located toward the back. This central fountain was common throughout the Middle Ages in all of the European countries and most of the towns around the countryside. In those times, fresh water was a commodity, so the fountain was a place to get fresh drinking water. Now you should notice that there's a column in the fountain with an unusual statue atop it. The statue is of a man on a horse with a spear, killing a dragon. That man is St. George, the patron saint of soldiers. Now, according to legend, the dragon made its home on the city's water supply. In order to get fresh water from the spring, the dragon needed to be distracted. So each day, the citizens brought an animal to sacrifice for the dragon. For a period of time, sheep were presented, and the dragon took those. But when none could be found, a maiden was selected by drawing random lots. Now, maidens were given over to the dragon, and one day, a princess drew the shortest lot and was carried off to the dragon. Her father, the king, begged for her life to be spared, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. Just as the princess was being offered to the dragon, St. George drops in and slays the dragon. In a literal sense, the statue of St. George is above the fountain, protecting the water from dragons. This particular work was inspired by the statue in the medieval Bavarian town of Rothenburg ob der Tauber. As you look down and around, don't miss the fact that there is a version of cobblestone streets beneath your feet. This is what you might expect in a town like this, though of course Disney made sure that it was even and well-made and that it's easy for guests to navigate. Now behind the fountain is a glockenspiel, which literally means bell player. It's placed within the clock tower on the wall. This clock is modeled after several clock towers in the towns of Martinstor and Freiburg along the Rhine. Every hour, the glockenspiel chimes, and a mechanical rooster emerges and begins the show with a flutter of its wings, followed by figures of a boy and a girl in Bavarian garb who strike the hour on a bell. The glockenspiel itself is based on one found on the Neues Rathaus, or the New City Hall in München, or Munich as we call it. And above and behind the bell tower is a medieval castle called a burg, which is modeled after the Stalek Castle, located in the Rhine Valley, and the Elts Castle, found in the hills above the Moselle River. Remember that in the medieval period, castles were common and provided a form of protection for small cities and towns nearby. Now here's a little piece of trivia for you. Castles were common throughout Europe during the Middle Ages and were built by nobility. 
It's interesting to note that castles are usually considered to be a fortified residence of the lord or noble. A palace was the home of nobility, but not usually fortified. Although the styles of the building are a bit of a mashup, most of what you see here is a timbered home or a Fachwerkhause, and would typically be found in southern Germany. Now this is a design element that was not overlooked by the Imagineers. The bottom level is smaller than the top. The reason for this is that the buildings were taxed based on the size of the first floor. The bottom floors are made of stone and house the shops and public areas, while the larger upper living quarters were constructed of heavy timbers joined by peg mortise and tenon joints and they have steeply pitched roofs that are also common to help deflect the snow in that region of the world. Oh, and by the way, you will have seen this type of construction before at Disney World. If you head into Fantasyland in the Magic Kingdom, you'll see a building style very similar to this. As you enter the square, look left. The first building you will see is the Carmel Kuka shop. It employs two types of architecture. One is a craftsman workshop, and was originally designed to showcase its former sponsor, Goebel, the maker of Hummel figures. And the second part is the timber style that I mentioned a moment ago. Moving along the square, you'll see the Christmas corner, or Ecke. Like St. George, the facade of the shop was inspired by the Hegreiterhaus in Rottenburg. It used to be on the site of a former infirmary kitchen in the city. On the real building is the coat of arms of the famous Rottenburg stoneman, Leonard Weidmann. A little farther along is Steinhaus, or Stonehouse, another half-timber house. You can tell because of the rockwork on the first floor and the wood frame on the second. Above this shop is a decorative light fixture positioned above the door. If you study it, you'll notice a bird with grapes in its beak. Ornamental figures like this are a common sight in Germany. Artwork in crystal, or Kunstarbeit in crystal, is housed in the next building. The design here is interesting because it was inspired by something more central in Germany, the Römer in Frankfurt. The Römer belongs to the Römer family who used it for their business until they sold it to the city council in 1405. It was converted for use by, as the city hall and remained in use for over 600 years. That is until an Allied bombing raid on March of 1942 during the Second World War destroyed the original building, but it's since been rebuilt. That makes this the only building in, Germ in the Germany pavilion that's directly related to World War II. As you continue to walk along the plots, you're in the middle of this horseshoe, and you're looking up at the burg or the fortress. A sign welcomes you and says, Willkommen. Both restaurants are in this area, but we'll get back to them in a bit. Depictions of lions, bears, and the crowns adorn the building. These are common in Germany on buildings and are typically considered as family crests or town seals or things of that nature. A little further along is Der Teddy Barra, followed by People Art, or Volkskunst. In the early years of Epcot, this shop sold craft-typed items that were handmade in small shops throughout Germany. A testimony to this can be seen in the stained-glass window of the shop depicting a young man building a birdhouse. The last building is Das Kofthaus, literally the department store, and it's modeled after the Historisches Kofthaus, or the Historical Merchants Hall, found in Freiburg in Breisgau. This structure was built between 1520 and 1521 and was once the hub of economic affairs in that region. Now, if you look up at the second floor of this building, you'll notice that there are three kings standing along the balcony. These are the kings Philip the Beautiful of Castile, Emperor Charles V, and Emperor Ferdinand I, if you look at them left to right. But, if you know your history, there were actually four kings of Habsburg. Omitted is Emperor Maximilian I. Now, the four kings were considered the four most influential and commanding leaders of the Habsburg dynasty. 
when the real Historisches Kaufhaus was being constructed and the, and the statues were sculpted by Sixt von Stauffen. Since what we're seeing is a representation of the hall below that, the Imagineers decided to represent the kings in the architecture. Now, since the Epcot version of the building is a scaled-down reproduction of the original, there wasn't room for all four leaders. So, unfortunately, Max got the axe. The story goes that the three kings at Epcot were sculpted much like their originals, but the original photographs that were sent to the Imagineers and the, and the artist were shot from ground level, distorting the statues and making it impossible for the artist to reproduce the figures accurately. So a local Friedberg photographer was hired to reshoot the originals. He rented a cherry picker to raise himself up to the level of the statues for a more complete photo shoot, and that made it easier to recreate the statues. Now let's talk about the grounds and the gardens. Because it feels like a small town, there isn't much in the way of gardens or other open space. It's a plots, after all, and not the Black Forest. But as you look over Epcot, you may notice there's a fair amount of space between Germany and its two neighbors, China on one side and Italy on the other. As you might have guessed, the two spaces, well, actually there's three, two closer to China and one closer to Italy, on either side of Germany were plotted to have World Showcase countries on them. But of course, that never happened. The space was left open for some period of time, but after a few years, Disney decided it was time to fill the space a bit. They put an African outpost between Germany and China. And between Germany and Italy, they had an idea. Imagineer Roger Brogi was fascinated by trains. He had procured and restored the trains that are in use around the Magic Kingdom. He had also developed the trains that were around Walt Disney's Carrollwood home. That is, the Carrollwood and Pacific Railroad that's a one-eighth scale steam train that Walt enjoyed in his yard. Somewhere along the way, he had built a sort of model train set, a prototype for some attraction he had in mind, but was never built or incorporated anywhere in Walt Disney World or Disneyland for that matter. And so Disney decided to add that model train, or a variation of it, depending on who you talk to, to the empty space on that land. This would have been about 1990 or so. Since Germany was known for trains, it seemed a natural kind of fit as a part of Germany, albeit as kind of an afterthought. It was a small-scale display that showed a bit of depth of imagination. Then in 1993, they decided to make it more permanent, and in some ways used it to promote the first Epcot Food and Wine Festival. It was made to look like an international festival of sorts. Shortly after that, the Imagineers cooked up, and yeah, I'm intending a pun there, as a way to inc further incorporate the notion of the Rhine River Valley into the design. They made this a representation of the Romantic Road, the Romantische Strasse, which is located between the Würzburg and Füssen regions of Germany, and set the era, based on the things that they added to the design, as a 1950s-era Bavarian colony. Signage supports the idea, and people who have been to the Romantic Road, me included, have said that this gives you a small-scale feeling of what it's like to be in that area. For those of you who are train aficionados, when it first opened, the layout was an O-scale layout. But due to problems with the operation, it was changed to a G-scale, or large-scale, and that's a 1 to 22 and a half scale. The train is designed to run on a 45-millimeter gauge track. Now, it goes through enhancements from time to time with new trains, slight modifications, and decorations for special events like the holidays and the Food and Wine Festival. Recently, they added magnetic rails to keep the local lizards and squirrels from knocking the train off the tracks and derailing it. The layout is actually three independent loops. Each loop has a different train running on the tracks. The trains take a tour around the village and the countryside. The railroad uses model trains from a German company, Lehmann Grossbahn, also known as LGB, and it's German for Lehmann's Big Train. And for those of you who don't know, LGB introduced this G-scale as the standard for garden railways, so it makes a lot of sense that they're using it there. 
On the side of each train, RHB is written on the engines. Now they set it up so that each engine is independent and pulls no cars. And the reason for this is to help avoid derailments. They do happen quite frequently. If you're ever walking by and you happen to see one that's derailed, just tell a cast member and they'll let somebody know who can stand it back up. And if you're lucky enough, you can talk to the guys who actually work on the train tracks because they know a little bit more about the trains. Now the Bavarian village they're showing there is both picturesque in its overall appearance and detailed in its execution, as is the surrounding countryside. Buildings represent different functions and architectural styles. There are public spaces such as city halls and churches, as well as businesses and private residences. There's even a mountainside castle. Naturally, there's a train depot. There are a few broken down trucks on the streets, and the streets all wind around and go through a countryside. Most of the fascination and fun of the layout derives from the curiosity and wanting to learn all of the details. It's open and running from park open to park close, rain or shine, so you can take your time and look around at your own pace, stand there for as long as you like. And because of the bridges and pathways, you can even get relatively close to the train's various scenes and follow the trains around. The display is filled with villagers going about their daily lives, from conversing with neighbors to working in the orchards. There's even a happy gathering of people celebrating one couple's wedding. And there is a hidden Mickey that you can find in one of the buildings. The display's landscaping assists in creating a sense of scale and place. There's a meticulous attention to detail in the trees, miniature topiaries, and other plants. Their use is common to garden railways in order to evoke a realistic miniature world. Now, one cool feature about the railway garden is that it's filled with real trees. They're all live. The trees and shrubs are there to provide uh, the surrounding countryside with the richness, and they're all living, and they're all manicured and, and maintained. That, to me, is pretty cool. It shows that attention to detail that uh, Disney uses when they design these things. Even though this is a little bit of an afterthought, it's amazing how much attention they put into it. Go over by it sometime and just stand there and take a look at it. You'll be amazed at just how detailed it really is. Most people just kind of walk on by and say, yeah, model train. But take a moment and just look at it for a minute. I think you'll find that the detail is really compelling and it's actually worth watching for a little bit. Now let's move on and talk about shopping. The Imagineers went to great lengths to ensure the items sold in the shops were authentic and German-made, hergestellt in Deutschland, and recognized as distinctly German. The Imagineers scoured Germany its shops, factories, and fairs for such items. Now, as I mentioned when I talk about the layout and what you see, there's a fair amount of shopping available in Germany. The Caramel Kutsche, or the Caramel Kitchen, is sponsored by Stork USA, makers of Werther's Original Caramels. The company was founded in 1903 by August Stork in, in Werther, Westphalia, Germany. The shop specializes in caramel treats, all handcrafted, dipped apples and fruits, caramel and chocolate confections, freshly made caramel popcorn, caramel cookies, and a whole lot more. Because of the sponsorship, the shop is basically a Werther's store, and probably the only freestanding Werther's store in the world. You can purchase all manner of prepackaged Werther's products, and I think you'd be surprised at how many products they actually make beyond just the caramels. Now, don't miss the beauty of the woodwork in the shop itself. Divine Knox Ecke, or Christmas Corner, has everything Christmas with a German touch. Since everything we think of in the secular Christmas, such as the use of trees, comes from Germany, this store will seem very familiar to you in terms of the lore and the legend of what we think about as Christmas. You'll find a large selection of ornaments, including Disney-themed ones, and the prices range from the inexpensive to the impossibly out of reach. At one point in time, there were a variety of nutcrackers and smokers, traditional in Germany. Today, you'll only find a small selection of them. Now, there is a German tradition that's represented here that we may think is a little odd. The pickle ornament. Now, legend has it, and really it may be simply just a legend, or folklore, 
that the pickle, a symbol of good luck, was the last ornament placed on the tree after the child went to bed. The first child to find the Christmas ornament in the morning was rewarded with an extra gift from St. Nicholas. If a family could not afford an extra gift, the lucky finder of the pickle was rewarded with being the first one to open a present. A large selection of these pickle ornaments is available in Die Weihnachtsecke. There's also the Steinhaus, or Stonehouse, which sells beautiful German beer steins. The word Stein is a shortened form of Steinzugkrug, which is German for a stoneware jug or tankard. In the 14th century, a law was passed in Germany stating that all drinking vessels needed to have a lid to keep out disease flies and help reduce the spread of the plague. And hence, the Stein was born. Weinkeller, or the wine cellar, makes you feel like you're in a real wine cellar. Germany is world famous for its wines. There are more than 250 varieties of white wine produced by sponsor H. Schmitz-Sune, and a wine bar where you can sample many of the offerings. Around 20 vintages are available for tasting for a charge of about 5 or $6 per sample. A number of tables are scattered throughout the room for groups to congregate around and enjoy their wine. Now, the way they've designed it, there are some beautiful woods and oak casks in the shop. Combining this with low ceilings gives a cozy atmosphere that almost allows you to make believe you're in an actual underground wine cellar. Next door is the shop Kunstarbeit in Crystal, the artwork in Crystal shop, which is operated by the Arebus Brothers. Beautiful and collectible crystal items can be had here, including a large selection of stemware, vases, jewelry, bear mugs, and some crystal art pieces. While browsing here, be sure to take some time to check out the beauty of the shop itself. Once again, the woodwork is really outstanding. Next up is Der Teddy Bar. It's the toy shop, or the Spielwarenladen. The teddy bear is just the name of the store. Inside you'll find handcrafted cuckoo clocks, plush teddies, the famous Steiff bear, teddy bears, and woodcrafted toys, confections, and more. As the store's name implies, this is the spot to shop for playthings. Costume dolls, miniature dragons and knights on horseback are just a few of the toys available. German candies and cookies are also sold here, but the real attraction is those Steiff teddy bears. Now, the Steiff company began with Margaret Steiff, a seamstress, who in 1880 founded her own company making toy stuffed animals. In the beginning, elephants were the animal of choice, but in time, other creatures joined the lineups such as dogs, cats, and pigs. Margaret's nephew... Richard Steiff is credited with creating the company's first toy bear, which debuted at the Leipzig Toy Fair in 1903, to few accolades. Just as the fair was coming to a close, an American purchased Richard's entire lot of 100 bears and ordered another 3,000. At the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, the Steiffs sold 12,000 bears, securing themselves a top spot in the toy world. Authentic Steiff bears have a small metal Steiff clip on their ear and, and have become collector's items over the years. Next in line is the Volkskunst, or the people's art, all types of souvenirs can be bought here, and take time to look at the beautiful stained glass window of the German artisan at work. This store also offers a large selection of cuckoo clocks, a commodity synonymous with the Black Forest region of Germany. In addition, hand-painted eggs created on-site are available. While shopping in the Volkskunst, be sure to take a look around. Once again, the woodwork is really, really well done, and the attention to detail is outstanding, and don't forget to look up at the ceiling. The last shop is Das Kaufhaus, or the department store. They sell sporting items, clothing, and accessories. Many of these items bear the Puma brand name. Puma is a German company that produces high-end athletic sportswear, shoes, music CDs, cookbooks, clothing, and other German-themed souvenirs. And maybe a little surprisingly in this store, you can find German-themed mouse ears. Yep, mouse ears are available in each of the 11 countries around World Showcase, in styles that are representative of the country you're visiting. Now, one thing of note is that in the early years of Epcot, there was a plan to use part of the shop area 
as a tourist bureau, where guests could actually book trips to Germany after touring various displays and, and going on a virtual tour of the countryside. However, it never materialized, perhaps in part because there was no weenie, nothing to draw the guests in to feel like they had seen enough of Germany to want to visit there. Now let's talk about some of the other things to do and see in Germany. Of course, there's a Kidcot station where you can get the Europcot World Passport stamped or work on Coloring Agent P, but more than that, it's a chance to interact with someone German who will be happy to tell your kids about their culture and where they come from. The station in Germany is located in the teddy bear store. Now here's where it ties back to the story I was telling before about Snow White being a German character and being one of the Grimm Brothers' fairy tales. Snow White can be found in the Germany pavilion. She's actually near the Wishing Well, and the Wishing Well is actually just next to the, the Carmel Kuka. If you look to the right, you'll see a Wishing Well there. Essentially, that is the Wishing Well that Snow White makes her wish in in the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs movie. They've recreated it here. Now remember before I said there was a nod to Snow White in the plots itself, and here's the specific thing that draws you in and re makes you realize that you're in the Snow White story because here's the wishing well that's tucked away in the, the store. Snow White visits from there. You can go in and get your picture taken with her. Now, what visit to any World Showcase pavilion, much less the Germany pavilion, would be complete without drinking around the world? Now, some people enjoy sampling an adult beverage from the countries around World Showcase. You can visit the wine cellar here, of course, or get a beer or liquor from the large selection in the Summerfest quick service restaurant that I'll talk about in a moment. But easiest is to simply visit the beer wagon. This is the spot to purchase a coldish brew and a pretzel. Several traditional German beers are offered, and yes, I said coldish to appeal to an American palate because typically beer in Germany is served at room temperature. And because we're talking about drinking, a quick note about why beer is so closely aligned with Germany. Back in the Middle Ages, sewage was often disposed of in rivers and streams, making the rivers not clean and the water not suitable for drinking. So drinkable water was hard to come by, and that's why they had these wells in the central part of town square. You still have a limited water supply, but the story goes they would ferment grains to a slightly alcoholic content, and then add some of this water in there, and that was enough to kill off the bacteria and make it safe to drink. It was common for everyone, children included, to drink this beverage, it was more of a mead than it was a beer, but it's how the beer industry developed when they continued to ferment the grains and add other things to it. Restaurants in Germany, well, there's the beer wagon, as well as a counter service place called Summerfest, and a sit-down restaurant called the Beer Garden. Summerfest, which really means summer festival, is located to the right of the square in the back. It's counter service and offers a wide variety of bratwurst sausages, pretzels, beers, liquors, and a few desserts like Black Forest cake, Bavarian cheesecake, and apple strudel. There are tables scattered around the area to sit and relax and enjoy a refreshment. While dining here, be sure to notice the beautiful mural of the German countryside. This is a wall mural I'm going to talk about shortly. But the big draw to this pavilion, and the main reason people come here, is the beer garden. Inside the castle, it's pretty much straight back in the pavilion, is where Oktoberfest is celebrated 12 months of the year. It's surprising how well the Imagineers recreated the atmosphere of a 16th century town in Rotenburg. It's perpetually nighttime, Long tables of eight are positioned around a semicircle on three tiers, all facing the stage. Around the perimeter of the courtyard, portions of the town can be seen, including homes, shops, and a water wheel, and trees. In the sky, a full moon shines down on guests. Meals are served buffet-style. You fix your plates and take them to your table. Offerings include salads, traditional sausages, rotisserie chicken, roast pork, fish, sour braten, sauerkraut, red cabbage, spatzel, schnitzel, and a, much and a whole lot more. And let's not forget the beer, which flows in abundance. It's impossible to leave here hungry, or thirsty for that matter. 
The beers are served in one-liter steins, which adds to the feeling of authenticity. Besides the food, the entertainment plays an important part in the beer garden experience. Numerous times each day, musicians take the stage and provide guests with some wonderful oompa music, comical cowbells, and resonating alpine horns. There are several different shows which rotate from one set to the next. All of the performances will definitely bring a smile to your face, and dancing is absolutely encouraged. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to make some important announcements. It's Sylvia's birthday. Happy birthday, Sylvia, right over here. And it's also Rick's birthday today. Happy birthday, Rick. For all of our birthdays, we would like to sing happy birthday in
pieces of wood differently tuned, held together with a string. And here for you to play his own instrument is our Franz. As a means of communicating in the Alpine region, way before the invention of smartphones and iPhones, to give messages from mountain hub to mountain hub in form of different signals. Now we use them to make beautiful music and commercials and to demonstrate. We have again Martin and Wilder. Now, to be sure, this is not the place for a quiet, romantic evening. You can find that elsewhere on property. This is the place to party. Beer and brats and singing and dancing. They might say, welcome to the party. 
Long tables, remember they're for eight, line the room. This is a place to be friendly and meet people from around the world. Because the tables are arranged the way they are, consider it family-style seating. You may be seated with other guests. Be sure to say Guten Abend to them, which means good evening, and you'll make some new friends. You'll be surprised at how quickly that'll happen. Now, a friend once told me that the beer garden epitomizes the World Showcase experience. You'd be hard-pressed to find another restaurant outside of Disney that offers the complete package of food and good times you can find here. I'm going to move on to what nearly was here at the Germany Pavilion. I mentioned earlier that there were a few connections to the Japan Pavilion. Another one is that, like Japan, there was a plan to have an attraction inside the pavilion. The pavilion was supposed to have a Rhine River cruise ride, similar to the Maelstrom in Norway, where guests would ride on the German rivers, the Rhine, the Tauber, the Ruhr, and the Isar. Along the way, Germany's culture and heritage, past and present, could be seen. But major budget cuts scrapped the attraction. The Rhine River cruise was mentioned early in Epcot's designs and had some drawings that appeared on promotional materials and was certainly in the planning stages. According to the Walt Disney Company's 1976 annual report, the Rhine River cruise was to be a cruise down Germany's most famous rivers, the Rhine, the Tauber, and the Ruhr, and the Isar. Detailed miniatures of famous landmarks will also be seen, including one of, Cologne, of the Cologne Cathedral. It was said that the river ride promised to be an enjoyable and informative ride. An early concept had guests boarding the cruise boat for a simulated ride down the Rhine River and other rivers, the trip affording a visual impression in miniature of the cultural heritage of Germany's past and highlights of its present. Among the detailed models and vision were scenes of the Black Forest, the Oktoberfest, Heidelberg, the Industrial Ruhr Valley, and the possibilities are limited only by the planner's imaginations. Later descriptions said that the ride would also feature the country's more modern achievements, much like Norway's Maelstrom boat ride, which would include the country's most recent industrial efforts. These most likely would have stood in the Ruhr Valley portion of the ride. Now, if you think about the relationship back to the model train, they kind of incorporated some of that into the train design with the countryside that you see, and you get an impression of what it's like to be in the uh, southern part of Germany. So it's sort of similar to what they had in mind, and it's kind of interesting how they carried that thought process into something else that they decided to do later. Now, officially, the Rhine River cruise got put on hold, and the intention was to build it after Epcot opened in 1982. But by 1983, partly thanks to the debt Disney had incurred while building the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, the company was in no position to add anything to, at all to it, any of its parks in the United States. Names like the Bass Brothers, Arvida, and Gibson greeting cards became the talk of the town, and as Disney sought desperately to save itself from being bought up, broken up and sold off to the highest bidder, the urgency behind creating big new theme park attractions faded. So by the time Michael Eisner and Frank Wells took over in 1984, plans for the Rhine River cruise had already been dropped. The story goes that some Imagineers still recall these plans fondly, though exactly what they were isn't clear. There is some debate about how far along in development the cruise got. Unlike Japan's pavilion, Meet the World, where a building sits waiting for an attraction, the show building for the Rhine River Cruise was never actually built. The load platform was built, and the land was cleared for the bulk of the ride show building, but no walls ever went up. And if you look at Google Maps or look behind the Germany Pavilion, you can see that that area is still open, so they never did finish the show building. One last thing about the ride. For a period of time from Epcot opening in 1982 until about 1988 or so, there was a huge wooden door at the end of the plaza behind St. George's statue and next to the beer garden, in 1988, when it became clear they weren't going to be adding any, the ride any time in the near future, they plastered over the doors and put up a mural. That's the mural I mentioned before. If you walk straight back in the pavilion and under the Willkommen sign, 
you will be standing on what would have been the entry into the Rhine River cruise. If you knock on the wall with the painting, you will hear that it's hollow behind it. On future podcasts, I'll take a look at the other World Showcase pavilions. And that's my look at the Germany Pavilion at Epcot. I hope you've enjoyed this look at it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gilles. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 